Uh, what's with the flags? Uh, is, I don't know if anyone's asking that question, um, but we have flags going tonight, which is awesome. And uh, p- potentially, I think it's probably because we're leaning into a series uh, called Holy Spirit. And uh, for those of you who are new to our evening service, we walk through the book of Acts at the moment, and we're up to chapter 8 and 9. And we try and sort of break it into manageable chunks uh, and bring out sort of a theme that comes from that particular section of Scripture. And we feel as though the right uh, moment at the moment is, is to do a series on the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit? Why is, is He there? Why is He uh, called the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we're using these couple of chapters of Acts to lean into that as a space to teach. But as you, if you've been around for a little while, then we've labored on, on this point a little bit that we have a culture here of spirit and truth, right? So we're grounded in uh, the truth, which comes from what God has revealed in the Bible to us. We stand upon the, the revelation and the firm foundation of that truth, uh, but we seek to balance that with, uh, with the spirit. God's, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 4 that the Lord is seeking those who are going to worship him uh, in spirit and truth. So what that means is that we're not going to get too comfortable in one mode without also trying to uh, get into the other to find some degree of balance in the middle. So yes, we're going to come through and this is going to be a, a chance to teach uh, more explicitly about uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, but we're not going to do that without also the opportunity to uh, lean in to the Holy Spirit. Right? And, and that looks like, I don't know, it could look like anything. It probably everyone has their own connotations in their own mind about what it could look like. Um, but I guess one of the things it could look like is flags. Um, so what does that mean? Is, is, I certainly grew up in a, in a church a tradition that didn't have that kind of thing. But uh, one of the things that we see all throughout Scripture is that uh, God is after his people expressing faith. Okay, you know that... Um, uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 2 that is by, by grace we are saved through faith. Okay, And so as we actually grow with God, as we go on this journey of salvation, God is asking us to express more faith to him. And then one of the things that we see particularly in the Gospels and how Jesus talks about faith is that faith isn't real until it makes its way into the physical world through some demonstrative action. Okay, is that make, making sense? And I've said this before, that the difference between someone with faith and someone without faith is absolutely nothing. There is no difference between someone with faith and someone without faith until the person with faith acts, until Peter reaches out his hand to lift up the lame beggar at the beautiful gate, until the lepers go and dip themselves in the pool in order to be cleansed of their leprosy. It's actually some kind of action that shows that there is an inward uh, faith thing happening. And that's why uh, Jesus has asked us to do some things physically as a representation of that faith. It's one of the reasons that baptism is important. It's an expression of the faith decision that's been made already, but it's brought into the physical through that demonstrative action. It's one of the reasons that we take communion as a physical symbol, because there's something powerful about bringing that declaration and that, that faith statement into reality. And so with things like... Um, the flags, each flag can kind of, based on the different colours, uh, has sort of an association with a particular idea or a particular theme. So um, there's a, a blood, the blood of Jesus uh, flag. Um, there's a Holy Spirit flag. Um, there might be others if, you, if you're curious. Pink was joy. Okay, great. 
So we had the, the pink one, which was meant to, to express joy, so that you know that for next time. But that is, that is simply a way of bringing what is happening internally in that, in that faith that, that, is, that God is stirring and bringing it into the physical. You're saying to God, you know what, I'm serious about this. I'm serious enough about this that I'm going to pick up this and demonstrate it in front of everybody. Because faith isn't real faith until it's brought out. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone has to pick up a flag, but it's, it's one mode that we can choose to express you know, worship and prayer and adoration of God. You know, and I've been very challenged on uh, what the expression of, of worship looks like. I've been doing my devotions through the Psalms, and uh, as somebody who grew up in a, in a church where it was reasonably conservative, certainly with our expression of, uh, of worship, it was a 45-degree church, which means that the hands don't get above about 45 degrees uh, in worship. But I was surprised, and I think you would be very surprised if you were to read through the Psalms and you would actually think about the things that we're told to do in worship. The amount of times that it says we should shout for joy, right? That we should dance. You would be very surprised at how varied and how sort of overt and, and you may even say extravagant is some of the descriptions of how people worship. And it's because, you know what, God didn't make just one emotion. He didn't make this emotion only. Right, God made joy. Right, that's a good gift that he made for us to be able to experience. And so during worship, it's appropriate for us to express that good gift. And what better mode, what, what better environment than actually adoring the God who gave us the ability to feel joy than to express that to him. So when you, when you see that, we, we try to have an environment here where, you know, you worship God the way that you feel you want to worship God. And sometimes that will also result in uh, sort of a, an empowering and, a, and an anointing and an expression of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to, over the next four weeks, uh, you know, be learning about what that might be and then potentially just asking God, just asking God to do stuff. And uh, that comes with no promises other than the promise that God responds to faith. Right, so we can't wrestle God into doing something that he's not going to do, but all through Scripture we see that God chooses to respond to people when they express faith. And so that's what we are doing. So this Holy Spirit series, we're going to make good on this cultural token that we've said is, is of spirit and truth, which we believe is, is actually what God has asked us to do. From the Bible, it says those uh, who worship him must worship him in spirit uh, and in truth. Now, the book of Acts, the reason it's called Acts is it's uh, known as the Acts of the Apostles. That's its full title. And so the, the book of Acts is essentially a, a sequel to the book of Luke. So Luke wrote both of them. And the book of Luke is the story of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And then the book of Acts is the continuation. It's part two. And so it's what did the apostles do? What did Jesus' disciples do in that time after Jesus rose and ascended? And it's the story of the growth and the initial moments of the church. And you know that there was a push in the last couple of decades that, hey, maybe we should rename this book. Maybe it shouldn't be called Acts of the Apostles Maybe it should be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. And that's actually not a bad idea because the main character 
across all of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. It's in fact, uh, what the pivotal moment in, in Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and they are suddenly uh, filled for the first time, filled permanently, indwelt by God through his Holy Spirit, and it brings in a new age of history. Okay, do, do you understand the significance of this, that the moment the Holy Spirit comes, the world was different on the day of Pentecost, the world was one way beforehand and the world was a different way uh, afterwards because God had actually been working this whole time. And you read through the Old Testament, the promises that God is making to his people is he's like, eventually, I'm going to do, do a number of things. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to forgive you of your sin. I'm going to actually make a way for you to be my people and me to be your God. I'm going to live inside of you. You're going to, all of your sons and daughters are going to prophesy and your old men are going to dream dreams and young, young men are going to see visions. All of these promises are pointing towards the moment when the Holy Spirit comes and that is the age of the church because the church is God's people who are marked by the Holy Spirit. And of course, that moment of Pentecost could not have happened without the cross. Okay, It was Jesus' pivotal work on the cross which allowed him to uh, ascend to the Father, be seated at the right hand, and to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. And you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit is also called uh, the forgotten person of the Trinity. And there are plenty of places where uh, the Holy Trinity is um, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Uh, but if you look at history, there is a, a period of time where, you know, some people will, will reflect, some scholars say that the Holy Spirit's essentially gone missing for a few centuries. And that is because one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to be the representative of Christ. It's to be Jesus' representative on earth here. And therefore, you are Jesus' representative because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And there was a period when uh, the church sort of replaced the Holy Spirit with the church, okay? And the representative of God became the institutional, structural church. Here I am. I'm the one who decides what God says, uh, where we go, and what we do. And so some scholars will reflect on that period and say, well, one of the main things that sort of went wrong there was that we replaced a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit with a relationship with God through the institution of the church, so, the Holy Spirit is, is incredibly important to the life uh, of a believer. And as we come into a series uh, called the Holy Spirit, you might find yourself in coming from a, a number of different positions. Okay? Your reaction might be one of skepticism. You might be going, oh, I don't know what kind of church I've come to here. Right? They're a bit obsessed with, with the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure if that's my game. And you come with a, a sense of skepticism that like, I'm wary of experiential Christianity. I'm wary of somewhere where the focus is all on feelings and not on facts. Well, that's, can I just say, that's not what's going on here at the moment. I, I came from that sort of uh, tradition as well, and, and I'll explain it in a minute why uh, that's not what we are about here. The second position that you might be in is one of openness, to say, well, you know what? I don't necessarily have a lot of experience with the Holy Spirit. I don't have a lot of personal stories about seeing the Holy Spirit do stuff, certainly not in the way that we see in the Bible, but I'm open to it, right? If that's God's way, if that's what God wants, then I'm open to it. 
Some of you might be in the position where actually this brings up a lot of really negative feelings and experiences, that you've been in places or come from places where uh, the stewardship of the Holy Spirit, the stewardship of what God does through the Holy Spirit has actually left a bit of a negative mark uh, on you. And unfortunately, like with anything uh, in, that, that involves humans, we can do it in a way that leaves a bad taste uh, in people's mouths. And there are a lot of uh, negative things that have happened you know, within or without uh, the church with regards to the Holy Spirit. But I want to just say that uh, this is, we are intending this to be a, a safe environment to be able to take this journey. There are some of you here, and I'm, I'm really hoping there are some of you here who are in a fourth category, and that is that when you hear that we're doing a, a series on the Holy Spirit, then you get excited. And there's, there's a few revs ticking over, and you're, you're getting ready for the gear changes, and you just want to be there, all right? Because you want to see the Holy Spirit move, you want to see God move, and uh, if that's you, I need you. Pray. <laughs> Pray for me. <laughs> The aim over this uh, journey over the next uh, couple of weeks is to be a, an environment that's safe, to be able to uh, ask God to move by his Holy Spirit, and that is simply open. It's not going to be an environment in any way that is uh, manipulative or forceful, forceful, because one of the things that we're going to see in this passage in Acts is that the one thing you can't do with the Holy Spirit is, is manipulate. You cannot fake what's going on with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Bible says that he's like a wind and he blows where uh, he pleases. So there's no point trying to do that because you can't. Anything that comes from man is, is not worth it. And so this is to be an environment that's going to be open and safe and genuine and honest. And hey, we are on a journey. And you know what? It's one that I take as well. I don't stand here as, as some guru with a lot of experience with, with the Holy Spirit. I, I've certainly come to a position of, of openness and I've had some uh, you know, quite, uh, I would say, meaningful or, or profound experience with the Holy Spirit, but there are going to be people in this room who have, who have a whole catalogue of uh, experience with the Holy Spirit, um, which is a, a huge encouragement to them and, and a, a, you know, a, a dam full of water of their faith that God has been building uh, for a long time. So we're all on a journey, and I'm taking that uh, with you. In the end, we can't manipulate the Holy Spirit. God doesn't bend to our demands, but he does respond to our faith. And you know what? Our faith can limit him working. Any, any red flags going on in people's minds? <laughs> that doesn't sound right, does it? Well, let me rephrase it another way. God chooses to limit his activity in areas where there is not faith. Occasionally. Right? He, he won't be held to that, right? But we see that there are moments in, in Jesus' ministry that he goes, he goes around, and the Bible actually said he could not do miracles in that area because of the lack of faith. And so whether it was that the lack of faith means God couldn't, probably not. God's all-powerful. He can do anything. But the lack of faith meant that for whatever reason God decided not to means that if we don't have faith, we are unlikely to see God move. All right, God could just break through that, and Holy Spirit, just do that now if you want to. <laughs> But the question is, if God wanted to do something here, if God wanted to show up and, and do any of these amazing things, would he find faith in this room? Would he find faith to actually respond to? That is the question. And that's the question 
that we need to keep in mind as we walk through this whole series. So we're in Acts chapter 8. If you would like to open your Bibles, uh, Acts chapter 8, we're starting at verse 9. And just before we do that, I might uh, just come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we acknowledge that this is your word. We acknowledge that you have chosen to reveal yourself through it in a way that is perfect and is complete. And yet you delight in revealing yourself moment by moment to us individually because you love us. And how often we need to come back to the fact that you've called yourself a father. And you're not an absent father. You're one who is growing us, who is, who is fathering us, parenting us, growing us from where we are to where we should be to grow into maturity and the fullness that you have planned for us. And so, God, we come and we submit now to your word and we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Acts chapter 8 and verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. That is, Simon. Simon was amazed. And so we've got this guy whose name is Simon the Magician, or Simon uh, Magus, and we are still in the place of Samaria. So remember from last week that Philip has, you know, Stephen's been killed and Philip has, among a number of people, been scattered around the place and he goes to Samaria. He preaches the gospel. He's known as the first evangelist. And by the way, we are all called to what it means to be a witness for Christ and to, to make disciples of all nations. And so Philip demonstrates that as he goes to Samaria, he preaches the word, but he's accompanied by all of these incredible signs and miracles, and so as he's in Samaria, we get to meet this character called uh, Simon Magus or Simon the Magician, and he is an interesting guy. He had, he had established himself in that city as a as a, an important person, kind of a celebrity, because he could do magic. And when we're talking about magic, we should understand that there is a supernatural world, and that supernatural things do exist. And if you haven't seen it then you haven't seen it yet. And there are lots of people in this room who have seen supernatural things uh, go on. And we should also understand that the reason supernatural things happen is because we have a supernatural God. However, there is also powers that oppose God. They ultimately have no victory over God, and yet they they are powers which can manipulate the world and which can do things that look like God's miracles, but everything that is done by dark powers is a, a pale reflection, an, an imitation, uh, a copy, a powerless copy of what God uh, is actually doing. And we can actually see uh, through this passage that that is the case. So when it says that Simon was doing magic, he wasn't doing card tricks. Okay, this is this is full on, uh, you, you know, witchcraft type stuff. 
Right? The only way to tap into that sort of powers, those sort of powers, is to go uh, down a path that directly uh, opposes God in the um, in the supernatural world. So this guy Simon had made a name for himself doing all these things, and Simon the magician actually pops up in a lot of other history. Okay, there are lots of other people who write uh, around the same time, and so a guy called Irenaeus mentions him. He's got like a bunch of different names. Some call him Simon Magus. Some call him Simon from Gitta. Um, there is apparently a, a cult that was established called the Simonians who followed him. And there's even a word coined, which I'm sure none of you have ever heard, um, and it's called simonry, which means to buy a, an office, to, to try and buy some sort of church job. Right, you, you pay someone and say, oh, I want to be the Pope or whatever. Anyway, I'm sure none of you have heard that word, but now you get, there you go. Your vocabulary has grown by one word that you'll never use again, I promise. But this guy, Simon, he pops up in uh, the rest of history. And so if, it, the thing about the ways that he is spoken of is that the details are all a bit different. Okay? So sometimes we get a clear picture in history. Sometimes we get a bit of a muddy picture. And so sound historical science is to say, okay, well, based on that muddy picture, what are the bits that we understand, that we can know for certain? And the things that we can know for certain are that Simon was a real person and that he could do real magic. Okay, based on all of the historical sources, every single one of them establishes that, yes, there must have been a guy called Simon who was in Samaria, and every single one of them doesn't even question the fact that he was doing signs and wonders that amazed the people. So, what do we do with this guy? The rest of his identity is a bit spurious. But what this passage does is it brings the supernatural into the conversation, and interestingly, it puts what is done through the hands of Philip in the same category, kind of. Okay, so we're talking about things which are definitely overt, which definitely come outside of human capability, okay? And Philip's signs and wonders that God is doing through him are talked about in the same category. That doesn't mean that they're placed on the same level. And I want you to notice that as soon as Philip arrives on the scene and he starts doing all of these you know, crazy uh, people getting healed and demons being cast out and, and all that kind of stuff, Simon's magic disappears. It doesn't get mentioned again. And notice that Simon, who had built this incredible name for himself, and everyone was like, wow, this guy's awesome, he sees what Philip is doing and he's like, whoa, that's something else. Right? It says that even he was amazed because of what he saw Philip doing. And you know what? God often, what his miracles are doing is they're miracles of restoration. They're miracles of healing, They're miracles of wholeness because every miracle is pointing towards the ultimate work that God is doing, which is restoring mankind, restoring all of creation to what he wants it to be. And every other thing that the dark powers try and do is some sort of party trick that cannot create, it cannot make whole, it cannot restore, it cannot bring peace, and it cannot do any of the things that God's incredible work can do. And so Simon looks at this stuff and he's like, all right, look, as the foremost expert in Samaria and maybe the Mediterranean world on all of this magic stuff, I don't know how he's doing that. And he has no choice but to, but to believe, right? You can see his, his worldview here, that, that he's someone who's, who's dabbled in that and yet he recognizes that, well, look, if I've kind of got to submit to this, all right? Because Philip's obviously got something that I can't do. And we'll see that that sort of worldview gets him in trouble uh, later in the passage. 
So it does mean that we are talking about uh, Philip doing things or God doing things through Philip that are uh, overtly supernatural, impossible to explain without uh, that sort of category of thing. Okay, so today's message is about uh, what it means to receive the Holy Spirit. So from verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, that is, the apostles laid their hands on the Sumerians, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit uh, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so you can see that Simon recognizes that this is a greater power. And yet his own sort of experience and worldview is like, ah, okay, well, I mean, I kind of want that too. And so he tries to purchase that uh, ability from them. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. There's a great uh, modern translation that brings across the forcefulness of, of this uh, in the original language, which says, to hell with you and your silver. Right? He was, he was really going at him here. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the apostles come and they lay their hands on the Samaritans and they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. So what is this about? And firstly, we need to understand the role that the Holy Spirit plays in salvation. Because the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary to the process to the moment of salvation, but also to your whole life as a person who is saved by God. The Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary. And I want to just show you a few things that he does, uh, reasons that he is important. First one comes from 1 Corinthians uh, 12, verse 3, which uh, is perhaps on the next slide, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. But through in this 12 verse 3. So the Holy Spirit is necessary for faith. For you to actually have faith in the first place, it requires the Holy Spirit to be working. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, uh, says that no one can say that Jesus is the Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. So even your confession of faith comes from uh, a work of God within you to say that Jesus is Lord. So you can't, in fact, come to faith without the Holy Spirit working uh, in your heart. The second thing that he does is he regenerates. The Holy Spirit regenerates and makes us new. Now, regenerate uh, is a a big theological word, which means that he gives you a new heart. All right, and uh, John 3, verse 6 to 8, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So this is in the passage where he's talking to Nicodemus. It's the famous John 3, 16, you know, for God to love the world, whoever believed in him. Uh, you can finish that if you want. But have eternal life. Thanks, Kate. 
do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, so the Spirit is what actually gives us new birth. If you are born again, you are born of the Spirit. Uh, the start of that passage says, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And so God has promised to give us a, a new heart and to dwell inside of us. And the way that he does that is through the Holy Spirit. So he is what regenerates us and makes us new. The Holy Spirit is also our connection to God. It is the, the means through which God actually connects us to him. And Ezekiel 36 uh, verse 26 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And so when God says, I'm going to put my spirit in you, he's going to say that that's the way that you can actually experience relationship with me. Now, I, I can look at it and I can see that there are probably a number of people here who are not married. Uh, but there are probably a lot of people here who are married. Um, I can think you can both answer this question. If you are married to someone, do you live in the same house as them? You can say yes, it's all right. Yeah, yes, thank you. If you're married to someone, you, li you live in the same house as them, right? If you are not living in the same house, then it's very difficult to actually be married, right? It's the same with God, right? If you have a relationship with someone, how are you going to have that relationship unless you're actually together in close proximity with each other? Right, And so God, when God says that he's going to come and live inside of us, that is the, the way that he does it, right? It's, it's kind of like a marriage. All right, I'm pushing the analogy too far, Clear, clearly. Do you get what I'm saying? All right, God wants to be near you. God doesn't want to just be staying up there in heaven and looking down and, and you know, asking you to do things and telling you to reach up or jump higher or climb the ladder or whatever. No, he wants to be with you where you are. So much so that he wants to be inside you, dwelling inside you, near your heart. And that is our connection to God. The Holy Spirit is the conduit for God's presence, power, and fruit in our lives. In Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so many times throughout the book of Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody and then it fills them in order to do something with power and fruitfulness. It is the way that we experience God's presence, and it's the way that he actually you know, does work and, and enables us to, to do things, whether that's to do ministry or whether that's to, to simply show God's love to someone uh, or uh, whether it's to do a work uh, inside of us. God is, uh, the Holy Spirit is also responsible for something called sanctification, and I can't remember how I worded it on the next slide. Sanctifies the believer. Um, we love Colin Buchanan in our house. Does anyone know who Colin Buchanan is? Yep. Um, and he has a, a great song. Uh, it's, it's, it, you know, bless his Presbyterian soul, because he came up with a song called Big Words That End in Shun. Does anyone know that song? Yeah. It's, it's great. But it's all of these big theological words like sanctification, justification, uh, substitution, it's like big words that end in shun. And, and then he gives like a one-sentence explanation of, of what they mean, and, and it's in, actually incredibly good theology uh, for you know, my five-year-old and two-year-old to listen to. Sanctification is, is one of those things. Uh, look up that word. 
uh, that song, it's great. Sanctification comes from the word, uh, the, the Latin word for um, spirit, sanctus. Okay, and so uh, sanctification is actually the spirit's work inside you, and it's it's making you uh, holier. Sorry, spiritus is the Latin for spirit. Sanctus is the Latin for holy. Okay, so it's it's the spirit's work of making you holy. What does that mean? Well, it's God refining you. It's God chipping away at the bits of the old man, which are inclined towards sin, and replacing them with bits of the new man, which is inclined towards God. So by the way, as a Christian, if you are growing, God should be dealing with sin in your life. You should be someone who is more and more leaning towards God and less and less leaning towards sin. God no longer holds you guilty or accountable or or under condemnation at all for your sin, but he says, okay, now it's time for you to continue to journey towards me and to live out of the new identity that I've given you, which is righteousness. That's the justification, if anyone uh, still looks up that song. All right, and so from that verse, we can see that the Gentiles, uh, Paul's talking about the Gentiles and that they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. They are made holy. All right, the next thing that uh, the Holy Spirit can do, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is described in a number of different terms. Uh, he's called the spirit of comfort. He's called the spirit of wisdom. He's called the spirit of power, the spirit of peace, the spirit of joy. And so anytime you feel any of those things or God wants you to feel any of those things, it's the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit that actually brings it to bear in your life. Now, the other thing is that, uh, that's really important about the Holy Spirit, uh, we get from Ephesians 1, uh, verse 13, and that is that he is the seal of God's salvation. He is the seal of God's promise. These words say, in him you also, when you heard the word of God of truth, uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is like the, the stamp, the seal of approval. You know, when a king would make a decree and then for it to be official, it would have to have the king's special wax stamp uh, plugged on it. And that stamp would then signify that it is uh, issued by the king. It comes as a guarantee of the king. And so the Holy Spirit on your life is God's stamp to say that this one belongs to me. He is the down payment of the salvation that will be made full and complete when we go to be with God. All right, so you cannot actually be saved unless you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? This verse is telling us that when you believe, the moment you express faith in God, then you receive the Holy Spirit. And that is God's way of stamping you and saying, this one belongs to me. This one is saved. It's the indwelling of the Spirit that actually makes us a Christian. And it's the fulfillment of God's initial intent to be with us and for us to be his people. And so you can see how God was working in all of the Old Testament towards this moment when he was actually able to send the Holy Spirit so that he could live inside of us. And you can see also that there was no such thing as a Christian until the Holy Spirit and if you want some, if you want an arbitrary line, theology is great at drawing arbitrary lines. So here is an arbitrary line for you. There are no such thing as a Christian before the day of Pentecost. You can call them followers of Jesus, call them disciples, whatever. But a Christian, in what we understand, is somebody who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that happens at the day of Pentecost. There you go, arbitrary line. Doesn't really matter. 
So, uh, this is a receiving of the Holy Spirit, which marks the moment of salvation. But the thing is, as we look through the book of Acts, uh, things get a little bit messy. All right, because Saul in chapter 9, I mean, we've got this, this point here, right, where the apostles come, they lay hands, and the Holy Spirit comes uh, at the laying on of hands. You've got in the next chapter, chapter 9, Saul uh, gets converted, spoiler alert, and uh, he, Ananias, comes and prays for him that he might receive the Holy Spirit, but there's no mention of him actually receiving the Holy Spirit. Just scales fall from his eyes, uh, he gets baptized, and then suddenly he's, uh, he's a new man, but the Holy Spirit is not specifically described in that chapter 9. In chapter 10, as Peter is preaching, a bunch of Gentiles in front of him are hearing his word, and they believe, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit just falls upon them. No one's praying for them. No one's laying on hands. Uh, and yet they just start to speak in tongues and they start to prophesy. And so it, it comes out in this overt spiritual expression uh, in that moment. But there's no laying on of hands. Uh, in chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds these Ephesian Christians and he's like, well, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? He just looks at them and he's like, something's not right here. Have you guys received the Holy Spirit? And he looks, and they look at him and they say, oh, well, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? And then he's like, well, what baptism did you receive? And they said, oh, the baptism of John. And then he said, oh, okay. Well, receive the Holy Spirit. Laid hands on them and, and bam, Holy Spirit comes and they're uh, speaking in tongues and, and prophesying again. In chapter 17, you have mention of the Thessalonians and the Bereans and the Athenians who all you know, express faith in God, but there's no mention of the Holy Spirit doing any overt activity at that point. Chapter 16, you also have the conversion of Lydia. Same thing. No explicit expression, uh, description of the Holy Spirit doing stuff in that moment. Not to mention the fact that in, in chapter 6, right, when we had the seven people appointed over that uh, practical ministry, there's no, it says that they're full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom at that point, but there's no description of, of any of those overt gifts. So there is a whole mix in that uh, Description of people receiving the Holy Spirit, there is a mix of, of people who are described as receiving it and who are not. People who sometimes display all of these overt signs like tongues and, and prophecy, and sometimes they don't. Uh, and so it makes it a bit messy. So how do we make sense of that? Typically what people have, have done is to say that, well, there are two experiences, two moments of uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. One which happens at faith, at conversion, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, regenerated. And then another, which happens as sort of a, a second blessing or a uh, second experience. And uh, this is where we start to get a little bit um, problematic in, in some ways that it's described uh, and viewed. Because uh, it's known as baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it can just get a little bit confusing. Uh, some places will teach that in order to prove that you're a Christian, then you have to have been baptized in the Spirit, which means that you have to have displayed the gift of, of tongues. Um, does, that, does that make sense, right? If they believe that unless you have spoken in tongues, then you actually haven't received uh, the Holy Spirit at all, which means that you are, are not a Christian. Uh, now, can I say that we don't believe that here, and the, the Bible is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 12.30, uh, that uh, Paul is saying, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. And you know what would be awesome? Is if we had a way in the English language of asking a question uh, 
rhetorically and knowing that the answer was no, right? So when you ask a, a rhetorical question and you know that, well, the answer has to be no. Well, did you know that, that Greek, which is the original language of this, actually does have a way to do that, right? So this uh, section should, should or could easily be translated, uh, all, not all possess gifts of healing, do they? Not all speak with tongues, do they? Not all interpret, do they? It, it's clear in the way that the original language is written that the answer to these rhetorical questions is no. Not all people speak in tongues. So how is it possible then to assert, to lay upon people that you can't be saved unless you've spoken in tongues when the Bible clearly says that no, not all people do speak in tongues? It just doesn't add up. No, a better way to understand what's going on here is rather than a first and a second experience, to describe it as a first and a subsequent experience and also to sort of strip away some of the extra uh, theological language that, that people try to put on this. So Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And that word for be filled with the Spirit uh, is what's called a, a present imperative. Um, apologies for the uh, overly uh, academic language. But what that means is that it is a command to do something and keep on doing it. All right, so if I was to say, uh, you know, go and clean your room, that's do something and then once it's done, that's all right. But if I was to say, be kind to people, right, that's do, keep doing that and do that for, uh, for the rest of your life. So be filled with the Spirit is go on being filled with the Spirit. And it's because we should be always uh, filled with the Spirit. And so rather than describing this as sort of a first blessing and then a, a second blessing, we should be saying that, well, there's, there's a first time that you receive the Holy Spirit, and sometimes we see that results in this you know, crazy spiritual stuff. Sometimes it doesn't. But at that moment, the Holy Spirit has marked you, has sealed you as someone uh, under God. You, you've been bought by the blood uh, of Jesus, and, and it's applied to you at that point in time because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. But you're encouraged to always be filled with the Holy Spirit and to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we see in the book of Acts is that these people uh, have these experiences and then they go on having more of these experiences afterwards. So it's not just a second, it's also a third and also a fourth and also a fifth. It's a first and then a subsequent. And I want to just try and explain some of the dynamics of this idea of uh, subsequent filling because the way that it seems to work is that it's, it's kind of like a, a floodgate. Do you know how a floodgate works? So you have a dam, which is a big thing of water. You have a wall, which holds the water back. And you have a gate, which lets the water out. And until you open the gate, no water can come out. But once the gate is open, the water starts uh, flooding forward. And so the way that it seems to work in people's lives is that for some people, there is this moment where everything's still kind of blocked up. And I think it's because God works as a gentleman. God's not going to force you to do something that you're not actually uh, ready for. He's going to partner with your level of, of faith and availability to him. And so what happens is that there's often this moment when that wall breaks. And after that, it's a lot easier for the waters to come flooding past and to come rushing in. And, and I don't know if, if there's anyone who relates to that experience in their life, that there was, there was a moment where they saw or received or had the Holy Spirit do something for them 
uh, for the first time. And then after that moment, it was like, of course, this makes sense. We can see that again and again. And that certainly was, uh, uh, was the case uh, with me. So God waits until we're ready and wants to respond to faith. And once it's tapped into, it's more likely to be a flowing uh, stream. Although certainly people go through dry patches where they don't experience uh, much of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's uh, finish the passage and then we'll look at what do we actually do with this. Um, Oh, we already did finish the passage, didn't we? Simon tries to buy this power. Okay, Simon sees that there's this uh, thing going on and he's like, I I want some of that. And so he says, you know, I'll give you some money if you'll give me the ability to to do this as well. And uh, Peter responds to him very sharply, it doesn't work like that. You've got yourself all mixed up and actually you're committing a a grievous uh, thing against God if that's what you are trying to do. And see, the thing is, the Holy Spirit cannot be bought, the Holy Spirit cannot be manipulated, and the Holy Spirit cannot be forced to do something. Anything that the Holy Spirit does must be genuine. But he's looking for faith uh, to respond to. And I asked us that question at the beginning, that if God decided he wanted to do something in this place, would he find faith? Would he find a place where people are open and believing and want to see him uh, do things. And you know what? That's, that's our prayer, and that's our desire for here, is that God would do something genuine. That we don't want it unless it's something that God is doing. And we've seen that many times uh, in the last four years uh, in this place. It seems that uh, somehow there are some environments where this uh, works more often. And if you've been to any of the courses that uh, we run here, then it seems to work in that moment. I'm going to uh, wrap up in a moment so the team can start uh, coming up. But what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that God, from the very beginning, desired for us to be in relationship with him Connected by the Holy Spirit. What do we do with the fact that this is kind of the pointy end of God's plan for us while we are here on earth? Is to be filled, to be anointed, to be given the power of the Holy Spirit, to grow his kingdom, to obey him, to be in relationship with him and to experience his love. What do we do with that? Do we just say, oh, that would be nice. Or do we start to stir a desire and start to stir a hunger for, you know what, maybe God has something more to offer. Maybe there's a a wall in my heart that is holding back God from actually doing something. And it's it's a wall of of, of faith or or skepticism. And I don't say that in, in a condemning kind of way because God has got everyone on a journey. And so maybe today is is a step for you to say, okay, well, I'm going to step one step closer towards openness. Just be open to what God is doing. You know what, God, if you want to do something, then come and do it. You know, we're we're not embarrassed if God does nothing, though we are earnestly desiring Him for, desiring for Him to do something. But we cannot control or manipulate what the Holy Spirit does. 
And fortunately for me, this could be a, a total flop as a sermon and God could still come and do stuff, right? Because he's God. And so we're gonna pray for that uh, in a moment. We see in the Bible a pattern of uh, people receiving the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And so we're just gonna ask that God might do that. And so if you're someone who feels like maybe you need to take a step towards openness or maybe you've got some things to to deal with in in the way that um, you've interacted with the Holy Spirit or or the experiences that you've had in in church, then we're just gonna pray that God would come and that God would do something uh, by his Holy Spirit. And there are a number of things that God does. And I, I I just feel like I shouldn't over define it. Okay, because I could give you a list of things that, hey, the Holy Spirit could do this. Um, but the Holy Spirit does what he wants. So what we're gonna do in this moment is, is uh, as we stand and as we sing, then we're just gonna have available the, the prayer team here to, to come and, and to lay hands on you and to say, you know, receive the Holy Spirit in whatever way God wants to move in your life, in what, addressing whatever need God has uh, in your life. So would you all stand and let's pray. Father God, you promised to give us life and to give us life abundantly. And at some point, we've got to be unsatisfied if that abundant life has not come because you've promised it, God, and you make good on your promises. When we see the promises of the, Holy, of the Old Testament in Joel chapter two, which says that you will pour your spirit out upon all flesh so that your sons and daughters may prophesy, your old men may dream dreams, young men may see visions. Are we satisfied saying that, well, that was them? Well, that's church X, Y, Z, but not here. Not me, not us. Are we satisfied with that? Because God, I think that you always wanna move. I think that you always wanna fill You desire us, you desire a relationship with us and you want us to want you. So God, we just uh, give you our faith. We give you this moment. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would we see and experience you in ways that bring you glory? Would you glorify yourself here?